This is Train to Perform, the undisputed alpha podcast in training, fitness, and sports performance. Here, you'll develop your skills with the cold, hard facts in fitness, sports performance, recovery, and nutrition. Real, tried and true, evidence-based facts that have been proven to move you faster, move you stronger, and move you forward. Now, here's your host of Train to Perform, Julian Sisman. And welcome back to the Train to Perform podcast. Thank you again for all the listeners. We really appreciate everybody that listens to this podcast. Hope you guys uh, get a little bit of something out of this. Um, Today we have Tim Labossier, who is the assistant strength coach uh, and does sports science with the Boston Bruins. Um, We talk a little bit about his path, but we get really into the nitty gritty of the strength conditioning with ice hockey, but also how it relates to, you know, other sports and how um, um, the programming and things that they do um, can translate to other sports and how other sports can use some of the ideas um, and, and many, as many of you know, I work with a lot of soccer players, so um, I got some tips from him. And to be honest with you, there's some you know things that can be used again, like I said, with uh, other sports. Um, we talk a little bit about uh, power, speed, how they um, test and uh, figure out fatigue. Who um, we also talk about sports specialization, um, how it relates to hockey, um, and how it relates to other sports, um, and much, much more. I just want to give a little uh, insight on what you are about to listen to. Hope you guys enjoy. Please share, uh, rate, um, and hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for uh, joining me uh, on the Train to Perform podcast. Um, So as I was saying before, I just kind of uh, go with the flow and um, you know, just kind of tell me about who you are, why you got into the strength conditioning field, um, how you got into, you know, where you are as the assistant strength coach, sports science at the Boston Bruins, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, great. Th- thanks for having me, Julian. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you here. Um, I started out um, kind of in a weird way in the field. I I grew up as a competitive gymnast and went to Springfield College to uh, do gymnastics with the idea that I wanted to be an exercise science major and open my own gymnastics facility um, and kind of use that to to be a gymnastic coach one day. And I had done a little bit of of, um, strength and conditioning myself, but really dove into it as a freshman at Springfield. And that's when I kind of realized that I really liked the sports performance side of things as an athlete and that realizing at the time I was at one of the best colleges you can go to for the field as well, coincidentally. So just kind of ran off with that and, um, did some internships at some, at some good places that were local. So I went to Holy Cross and Quinnipiac university. I did an internship at, uh, UMass Lowell when I was in grad school as well. So all great schools that have hockey, um, and just kind of kept snowballing that hockey experience, um, into a GA position out in St. Louis, Missouri with Lindenwood University, where that was my first full-time um, position working with men's and women's hockey um, and, and was lucky enough to have some good connections to Kevin Neald um, at the Boston Bruins 
um, to get me over to originally work with the Providence Bruins, their minor league affiliate, and uh, was lucky enough to uh, get the call up to, to join the NHL ranks this past summer. So excited to be here. I, I am in charge of all the reconditioning for our injured players on the team, but then take control of all the sports science um, side of things too, both on and off the ice with that stuff. Awesome. Did you, are you originally from the U.S.? I am. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually okay. you from. You kind of have like a little accent. I thought you were, <laughs> like you might have been from like Canada. No, no. I, you know what? It, it's funny. I, I hang around people from Canada all the time. So I, I think it's one of those things I probably do get a little bit of it just from being around them. But I'm, I'm actually from right outside of Boston. So um, being back here with this team is awesome that I grew up watching. So I'm, I'm yeah. only like 20 minutes away from my parents' house that I grew up in, which is, which is cool to be back and close to them since I've, I've moved around quite a bit over the years. So, so you, you, you started at uh, Springfield. Um, yep. Did you initially go there for strength conditioning or was it just like you went in and kind of like general studies and then it just kind of like, Oh damn, uh, I'm at this like, you know, pretty well-known, uh, uh, you know, exercise science, strength conditioning place. Uh, like, why don't I just like take a stab at it? For sure. Yeah. It was, uh, I actually went in as a business major thinking like, okay, if I want to open my own gym one day, then business is the right thing to do. And I, we had to fill out like a freshman year survey or something that, um, was describing what we wanted to do. And when I filled that out and kind of described it, they, at the time had openings for their exercise science department and told me that what I was looking for was a little bit more directed towards that because I wanted to do some personal training and stuff like that. I I really had no aspirations of doing sports performance um, at all, but then, you know, intro to exercise science, whatever the first class I take, I start learning about it and I start doing strength conditioning as an athlete myself as a gymnast there. um, And and really just kind of like that. Um, It was I'd be curious what it would be like if I played a different sport in high school and strength and conditioning was a little bit more common, but being a gymnast, I honestly never really trained too much, um, until I got to college. So that's when I kind of really fell in love with it and, and saw both sides of it, both as the coach side, um, from the classroom, but then the athlete side going through it on a, on a day-to-day basis. So going, so you, you actually did gymnastics at Springfield. I did. Yeah. I did it for four years. They're one of oh, the nice. uh, 15 colleges left in the country with men's gymnastics. So it's a, it's a dying sport, but I was lucky enough to uh, get on a team. Um, Wait, that was still left. Are you serious? Like there's yeah. only 15 in the whole U S yeah, there used to be say, say 20 something years ago, there was roughly 80, I think it was. And then just because of budget cuts and, and whatnot, um, it's, it's been slowly dwindling little by little. Are, are they, um, is it all one division now or is it, are they still like one, two, one, two, and three? Uh, technically it's one, two, three, but we all compete against each other. So Springfield's a division three, but we competed against only division ones. And there now has been a division, I believe it's two school since I've graduated that has rejoined and gotten a men's gymnastics program. But okay. We, they all compete against each other. The only difference, obviously, is from a scholarship standpoint. So the Division Two and Division Three schools are, are obviously at a little bit of a disadvantage there. But, uh, yeah. but we, we still like to compete and, and put ourselves out there for it. So it's a, it's a good time. So uh, 
Okay. So let me ask you this. So you talked about, uh, what it would be like as a athlete coming through high school. Um, okay. <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm going to hit, uh, uh, a topic that is always talked about in the strength conditioning field is, you know, uh, one sport. Uh, did you just do one sport when you were in high school? Um, and then from there, like, if you did do one sport, like, did you find it effective in getting you into college or do you wish that you had participated in other sports or at least did some type of strength and conditioning now that you understand and see the benefits to it from, you know, all different levels technically? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's a great question. I am one of the rare I guess you can call it athletes in gymnastics where I did do multiple sports up until I was in 10th grade. So I, um, did gymnastics since I was four. Um, but then I also played basketball and played baseball until I was in uh, 10th grade and then realized that gymnastics was kind of the path I was going. So once 10th grade hit, I, uh, I, I started specializing in gymnastics, but when I got to college, um, I'd say 90% of my teammates, um, hadn't played another sport since they were really young, you know, maybe like seven, mm -hmm. eight years old. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just kind of how gymnastics is a, a lot of the times because of the time commitment with it. But what I did notice with that is me and, and the few people that had played sports um, for a longer duration of time, we were drastically less injured than the rest of our teammates. You know, I think gymnastics comes with this, um, you know, chronic back pain and shoulder pain and all this other stuff just from the, the chronic overuse injuries. But me and some other people that have played baseball and, you know, also spent some more time um, caring about the strength and conditioning side of things when we were in college, we never really had back pain. You know, I, I had one injury my junior year with my elbow, but that was one of those freak accident one-time things. So none of it was, was chronic overuse, which I saw a lot of my teammates um, getting from, from specializing. Sweet. Yeah. It's a, it's a interesting. That's it's always the a topic that I always, I, it's funny because I talk about that with a lot of the strength and conditioning, uh, you know, people that I bring on this podcast because um, I just like to give different points of views, like, um, and it's, you know, the common theme is continues to be, you know, the athletes that are doing multiple sports seem to be less prone to injury, um, actually more successful in the one sport they kind of go with, uh, um, as they get older or as they get into college, um, and, and I, I, I person from my personal perspective, I think, it, I think it's, uh, I think it helped me, um, because, you know, I did play soccer, I would say 90% of my life. <laughs> and, you know, there were, <clears throat> there were the years of like playing other sports. And I think those years helped like just understanding movement. I mean, I never did any type of strength conditioning, maybe once or twice when I was in high school or middle school. Um, yeah. and and it just wasn't really much of anything. I think, you know, I think over the past, uh, let's say 15, 20 years, I would say uh, this field has grown tremendously. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously because of the science and the research, um, especially because now, you know, sports science, it's like a huge thing. 
Um, <clears throat> so, so let's kind of segue to that. So when it comes to the sports science stuff, um, when did you, when did you sort of start dabbling with it as far as like, you know, different metrics, uh, like, are you doing, you know, are you guys using some type of catapults or something similar to catapult? Cause I know, um, you know, I'm doing my PhD right now. So like I took an okay. advanced, I'm doing an advanced, I just took an advanced sports technology class with, uh, Dr. Mann. Okay. Uh, yeah. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. I do. And, uh, I know that in, when you're in an arena, you know, you're not getting a lot of that, uh, GPS, good, that GPS cause of the, so I know they have new, 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 newer technology that helps with that. So I don't know you tell me how you got into it and you know, how'd you get to where you are right now? Yeah, I think, uh, my first few internships, um, realistically was a lot of like meat and potato strength and conditioning. You know, there wasn't really much sports science with that. And I realized the trajectory of what I wanted the career to look like for me, I was going to need to know something about that. So mm -hmm. when I went to, um, Linwood university for my, uh, graduate assistantship, I, I had, um, the summer to take an internship as a class. And I came back home and, and made oh, sure wow. I did it at, at UMass Lowell with Devin McConnell, who was there at the time, who's now with the Arizona Coyotes. Um, he, he was <clears throat> maybe the most vocal about what he was doing with his sports science stuff. You know, he was posting a lot of stuff on, on social media um, about what he was doing and, and worked with hockey specifically. So it was really intriguing to me. So I went there and that was kind of my first, um, experience to all technology besides like a just jump mat, or, you know, he, he was doing some really cool stuff with RSI, um, for fatigue monitoring, um, on the jump mat. He had gym wares and perch for velocity based training. Um, he was starting to, um, slowly work in some, some catapult stuff, but was doing heart rate stuff for, for multiple years with those guys. So a what lot type of, of heart rate. He, he, what, at the time, he, he at the time had polar. Yeah. The team okay. system. So okay. then that I, uh, I, I got the job with the Providence Bruins right after that summer, um, with him, which was perfect. Cause I got thrown into an atmosphere where we at the time had first beat, um, for my first year in Providence, but slowly switched over to polar, um, the next year. But then we used, um, we used gym wear probably on a weekly basis, um, while I was there, we were doing, um, some different eccentric utilization ratio equations between counter movement jumps and non counter movement jumps on the jump mat to kind of determine whether guys were going into more of a, a speed or a strength group. Um, which was great because down in Providence, I was the only guy there. So I got to essentially do whatever I wanted to do. Um, you know, mess around and use some lab rat, um, for guys that weren't, weren't playing on the weekend and, and test out some new stuff. And it really, um, you know, helped help me grow that side of, um, this profession, which is perfect because now that I've gotten the call up here, um, to Boston, we have gym wear on every rack and use it on a weekly, weekly basis here, whether it's trap bar or bench press or something like that. We at one point had force plates, but got away from them and are doing just jump mat stuff again. But the, the biggest component of, of my time is the on ice stuff. We do use catapult um, and we just have polar heart rate that we um, pull in through that catapult that just automatically connects to each other. Um, so we're taking 
that external um, loading stuff from the catapult, the internal from the heart rate monitoring, but then looking at uh, both of those in conjunction with some subjective um, questionnaire stuff that we're doing on, on practice days to kind of see where the trends are from a, from a team basis and an individual basis. Can you explain RSI? Yeah. So <clears throat> for, for there, there's kind of two, it, I guess, I guess I could say. Yeah. So the, the, the way that Devin was using it at, at um, UMass Lowell was the first time I'd ever seen someone use it with a jump mat. So you need essentially, it's like an extra $50 chip that gets put in the just jump mat computer and he was using it with a drop jump. So I think he was going off of a 18 inch box land and rebound quick, jump as high as you can, um, and was using that RSI number, which is jump height divided by contact time, um, to use that as a fatigue index for central nervous system. Because what a lot of people try to do is use vertical jump as a measure of their nervous system being fatigued, but um, you can still jump the same exact height, but just change your jumping strategy to make it look like your jump height is the exact same, but you're, the way that you're approaching that, that power movement is different. So you can spend a longer time on the ground. You can swing your arms more aggressively. Um, multiple different things um, that you can't see unless you have a force plate. So he was using um, the drop jump um, to kind of keep people within a confined um, time for their contact time that was similar to a skating stride. Um, which is around like 0.3 um, seconds um, and then taking the jump height with that um, and then using standard deviations off of their average um, to kind of put guys in like a green zone. You know, you're above a standard deviation. You're good to go. You can up your weight on your program if you want to a kind of 0.5 standard deviation above and below to say like, okay, you're kind of normal. So you're just going to do exactly what is on the program or, you know, below one standard deviation, what their normal is, which is, hey, you're really fatigued nervous system wise. So we're going to either, you know, scale back a set of our main movement or, you know, maybe pull back on on the load um, to decrease intensity a little bit. You know, there was kind of multiple different ways that that we could go about approaching it. But that was kind of the general consensus there. So for this to figure out the standard deviation, I'm assuming you do a like multiple prior jumps, like as like a pre pre-test type thing. And then use that yeah. as like the gauge, like over yep, time. Exactly. What, what we would end up doing, um, there, which I thought was a really good system. The way he did it is he would have everyone, um, warm up, you know, whatever role mobility, activation, dynamic warm up. everyone would go through their RSI, which I think he was at the time doing three jumps and just taking the best out of all of them. Um, and then right, he was lucky too. He has six jump mats there at the time. So it was easy to get whatever, 25, 30 guys through yeah. to, to do three jumps. So whatever, he's got all the interns ripping down all of the numbers and then they go into some sprint and med ball work and everything, which, you know, would take say eight minutes. And during that eight minutes, the interns would be on the computers crunching in the numbers that they just did. Um, that would automatically update on uh, coach me plus is what he had at the time to kind okay. of give up a standard deviation off of that. But yeah, they were, they were training Monday, Monday through Friday and they were doing the, those jumps, those drop jumps every single day that they were training. So 
the amount of <laughs> the amount of data that he had on that to yeah. get a real accurate average was was spot on. Yeah. Well, what did the that's that's interesting how he would do that and then he would do speed work after. Wouldn't that affect uh, the nervous system as well? Like, wouldn't like how would he be like? Hey, like you're doing this many sprints or this many sprints. Wouldn't you want to have that number before you do sprint and med ball work? Because you know, I mean, I know that doing it at the beginning of the workout is important because it you know you, those are nervous system you know uh, intensive exercises um so how did he gauge like hey you need this many sprints or you can do this many med ball versus then being able to tell them like i know the load and all that sets reps volume and all that affects as well but just kind of curious how he did how he figured that out yeah i think it was twofold the first part is realistically just logistics you know like if if guys do all these jumps and then have to wait around for five minutes yeah. to get their numbers yeah. and they're sitting around so i think that was the most important part of it. But then the second part of it is because hockey is transitioning to being so speed emphasis um, mm -hmm. with the game. Mm -hmm. I think the thought process there was like, okay, if we're going to cut out any volume, the volume that I care the least about is the whatever heavy rear foot elevated split squats or the heavy bench press. And I would rather spend, you know, the extra volume doing some sprint and med ball work and then scaling back on the other stuff. Um, you know, there, there might be a, a rare circumstance where that wasn't the case, but typically that would come from a conversation that he would have with someone before those numbers were even out about just like, Hey, I really feel like shit today or something from the suggested subjective questionnaires that they were filling out every morning. So we had some info before they even stepped foot in the door that could open up those conversations. But um, most of the time, if if we were going to scale back on anything volume wise, it would be the the lifting and not not the uh, not the jumps and the throws and the sprints. And that's 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 uh that's I like that because I mean I I'm in a more private setting, so the you know when I have kids coming in here, uh, my the the conversation is is not really hey we're going to be doing jump jumps today, but sometimes I I can I can I, I could do it because. I don't have a jump mat. I actually got, um, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's like this, these little like Bluetooth, it's called Exergo. Yeah. 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 Say yep. We had um, those when I was in uh, St. Louis. So I know those really well. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about those is that it provides, uh, obviously that jump height, but also RSI. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out how to, how to utilize that with, um, these kids, like even when they come in, cause, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about before about um, specialization. I mean, I would say 99% of kids that come here are playing soccer uh, just because that's my background. Yeah. Um, or whatever sport they, they play, it's it's like that sport. I mean, I'm in an area where, like, you find a rare case of a kid playing <laughs> multiple sports. Yeah. So so it's like, it's like you know, trying to uh, – you know, bare bones of like sports science, um, and, uh, trying to make sure that, you know, they're not more doing, doing things that are going to fatigue them more. Um, For especially sure. like, you know, um, that's awesome. So, um, what was I going to ask you? Uh, did, um, so you were at, so you did that stuff with him at, at um, UMass. And yep. then w when you, when you, you know, 
so okay, this is what I was going to ask you. So for the the catapult and the heart, and the heart rate, are, are you getting any GPS, or is this just external load from just the the playing and then heart rate, just the pure? That's it. Yeah. So we don't we don't get the the catapult hockey data is uh, one still new because okay. it's it's probably emerged in the past five years, but also it's it's different than the field-based sports um, because it does take shooting into consideration and and all that. Um, So we don't get any velocity measures just because um, you you could um, get that. You just have to get whatever, an extra $20,000 to set it up (laughs) in your arena. Uh, But we we do get acceleration um, from that, which is – just as as important to us because the way the player load on that works um, is based on acceleration anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we kind of look at um, three different metrics for everyone. We look at player load, on ice load, um, and then we look at high skating load. Um, so player load is just a, a – combination of all the different acceleration zones including walking gliding standing around um which kind of just gives a general picture of the total work that's done um the on ice load takes out those bottom two um acceleration zones so we get rid of the slow skating and the gliding and we just look at kind of moderate speed and high speed um skating and then our high skate load um is a number that includes body weight, um, but kind of gives those quick changes of directions and bursts, um, to kind of give us an, uh, a better understanding of what the true high end, um, acceleration numbers look like. Um, those are, those are the big three that we look at from the external. And then if someone's coming back from, um, an injury, um, there is some asymmetry, um, stuff that we look at as well. The only issue with the asymmetry is because it's a rotational sport. Everyone is naturally asymmetrical. You know, all lefty shooters are going to be asymmetrical to their left side because they're putting more weight on their left leg and they're rotating in one specific direction. So we use that to kind of try and get a normalized range um, for what their asymmetry is. Um, And obviously, you know, people that shoot more, are going to be more asymmetrical, at least in their numbers. And we take that average, same idea as the RSI. We find a standard deviation off of that. And guys that are coming back from injury, we just try and keep them within that standard deviation. That one's a little tougher because I think, you know, a lot of people think about standard or uh, asymmetries and they think 10% is kind of like a nice little cutoff. But a normal asymmetry for you know, a a right wing who might shoot all the time and shoot a hundred pucks before practice and a hundred pucks after practice, a normal asymmetry for them could be 18. And it's not just because they're asymmetrical. It's because their natural movement of sport is extremely asymmetrical, especially the more they start shooting the puck. So that one is, is really a case by case, um, number. And and that asymmetry, are you, are you, are you talking about, like strength or are you talking about are you talking about strength in in lower body upper body like what what's the what asymmetry are you like i mean i know what you're talking about the rotation like they're they're 
probably planting a lot. If say you're talking about right, right, right-handed shooter, you're probably planting a lot on the right and rotating. So you're not putting as much tension on the left leg. So, uh, I, the reason I'm asking that is because I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this for soccer because it's probably the same. It's probably a very similar, uh, situation in that if you're right, right footed shooter, your left leg, and I know this for a fact, it's probably a little bit more stable and stronger than the the right side you're, you know, you're hitting with the right side. For sure. Yeah. It, it, it could be looked at as strength for sure, because we have force measurements that generally Mm -hmm. come out from there. Um, but it, it looks at mainly, um, positionally from left to right. Um, because it's right in the middle of someone's shoulder blades, obviously it can see mm-hmm. which direction they're moving in more frequently, but also how fast they're moving in those directions as well. So I, I wish I could tell you what the equation was that they're actually <laughs> pulling that stuff out, but that's why catapult has, has all their clients because they keep those, uh, they keep those equations pretty close to the chest. Oh, so, so they're, they're able to, they're able to put out output, a number to you like okay because he's right this is what's going on wow that's that's awesome yeah and and they do it they do it for both total skating so just like how we look at the the player load versus the on ice load versus the high skate load they have asymmetry data for um just all skating and high intensity skating which is nice to look at both of those and that's kind of how we tease out some of the shooting a little bit because most shooting is going to be considered a high intensity effort based on how mm. fast these shots are coming nowadays. Mm. Um, so that, that's kind of our way of, um, you know, trying to tease out a little bit of the, the built in asymmetry of the sport. Are you able to use the catapult to uh, dictate uh, someone's training load um, or like, Hey, we need to pull this person out. Like are you using live? Is it very li- Is it more live, or is it um, using data from yesterday, from the day before, for the next day? Like, yeah. how's that? Is that is that how you guys are using it, or is it? It's, you know? it's both, and I'd okay. say it's a bit more retroactively than it is live. What we tend to do live is specifically for guys that are coming back from in- injury. We like mm-hmm. to make sure they're getting within certain. Um, ranges um, that are individual to them that are normal for practice before they join the team for practice. Um, same thing once they join the team, we're using that live monitoring to make sure that they're staying within their practice um, and they're not overdoing it just because they're heightened from being you know, excited and joining the team and everything. Um, the other thing that we use it for is um, for the mornings on game days when we have morning skates, Um, For anyone who's not playing, they always do extra skating with the assistant coaches. So we utilize, um, you know, what kind of skating we think they should do. You know, if they haven't had a lot of um, high intensity skating lately, we'll do some um, smaller area um, change of direction work so that they're getting um, some really quick short duration acceleration. Um, But if they've had a lot of that recently, then we, try and uh, let the assistant coaches know that we want them to do more um, longer distance, high speed with full rest um, work, which the assistant coaches have been unbelievable about, about working with us with that. Um, But from a team perspective, 
Um, you know, we, we have a head coach who's been a head coach for in different organizations and, and teams for, you know, probably 30 years, if I had to guess. Um, yeah. So for us to try and tell him on a day-to-day basis, you know, we need to be within this range or whatever. He, he one doesn't really understand that stuff well, but also like he, his coaching mind is so dialed in that even without us telling him that he generally does it anyways. The only thing that we communicate to him, and this is a conversation between us, the medical department and him um, is individual guys getting specific days off and it ends up being more geared towards our older players you know if you're in the 30 and above club you get a lot more days off typically if Mm -hmm. your loads are are showing red on the standard deviation versus you know if you're a 23 year old rookie like you you can deal with it a little bit you know you got to almost earn your keep a little bit and your body's just a little bit more pliable to be able to handle being being above your averages uh let's 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 talk about that so what what, what's like a a i don't want to phrase this what's like one thing that you notice from because i mean you you've worked with guys in college uh for hockey and then coming into the nhl like what uh is like a big um i mean obviously they're good enough to play hockey but what's a uh strength or weakness that they come in with as far as, you know, the strength and conditioning, fitness, or however you guys want to call it, conditioning, you know, whatever. I, I, I say fitness because soccer, but sure. you know what I mean? Like what, what's like one thing that they, uh, they lack? Cause they do have a combine very similar to the NFL combine. I'm sure there's no 40 yard dash, but yeah, no, some, some, some things. Hockey is really interesting because the, for the combine, um, it, so how it works in hockey is you can only be drafted as a 17, 18 or 19 year old player. So, um, you know, if you don't get drafted when you're 19 years old and you're a college player, you're automatically a free agent. So you can choose to leave college at any time and sign with the team. You can do all four years of college and sign. So we have a, a really interesting combination on our team of players who have played in college that were drafted by us before they went to college and they did whatever, one, two, three, four years, and then joined our team. We have players that never got drafted that were free agents that chose to sign with us after their college career. And then we have some players that were drafted and went to play junior hockey in Canada. And because they went to a specific league, they were no longer eligible to play NCAA hockey because they were getting paid to play in Mm -hmm. these junior leagues. So then Mm -hmm. they end up just coming to us right from these junior leagues. And I think what we end up seeing is 95% of the time, I might even say 99% of the time, uh, these college players are in a drastically better spot than the non-college players are. Oh, wow. And that's, that's likely a combination of the fact that they're older, you know, if you go and play junior hockey in a league where you're allowed to go to college and then you go to college after that, you might be coming out of as a senior at 24 years old versus if you're going to junior hockey and then coming right to play pro hockey, you might be 19, 20, 21 years old. So that for sure plays a role in it. But a lot of these colleges have not, not a lot of them, all of them have 
some sort of strength and conditioning background. You know, some are obviously better than others, but a lot of these junior hockey teams don't have strength and conditioning at all. And if they do, it's a consultant that comes in once or twice a week and just kind of runs something for the whole team and isn't there on a, on a day-to-day basis. So what we see with our college athletes generally is they're, they're older, they're bigger, they're stronger. Um, a lot of times they're faster. Um, the only thing that might limit them sometimes is, is just their movement capabilities. You know, I think because they're older compared to some junior hockey players, they might have more um, restrictions from a mobility standpoint, but then also, you know, some of these college programs are very, I'll call it football based strength and conditioning programs <laughs> where they're back squatting really heavy and hand cleaning yeah. and bench pressing. And there's not a lot of, you know, mobility and movement training. So they, they can tend to be stiffer. Um, so these younger kids maybe are better movers and are in better shape, especially if they're from Europe all they really do is ride the bike and run, you know, five K's or whatever over there. So they tend to be good movers and in good shape, but really missing that foundational um, strength and power that, that a lot of the college players do have. Yeah. So, so you're saying these kids uh, that are coming out of high school, even uh, some of them are getting drafted. I mean, what percent of kid is going to go from, straight from high school to NHL. Like there's a small percentage. Yeah, almost none. I would say maybe if you're a top five draft pick um, at 17 years old, you're going to go right away, um, you know, but that's like the, the Connor McDavid's and the Austin Matthews of the world, you know, even this past year with the NHL draft, the top five kids, um, I think four of them all went to college or were going to be freshmen in college. Um, and all of them went, they didn't, none of them decided to join the NHL this year. You know, they might decide to join after their, their year at, at college, mm-hmm. but, um, to, to make that jump is really hard. You know, even yeah. if you are, even if you're a bigger high school junior hockey player, you might be 190 pounds, but there's some NHL players that are 230, 240 pounds, you know? And if you've never battled on the ice against the boards against someone like that you get thrown into that atmosphere it's it's a shock to the system so that's why for a lot of people playing in maybe a a professional hockey league overseas if you're european and you stay over there or going to college to automatically play against some some older people or if you're going to join the pro ranks a lot of people do go to the minor leagues um just to to give them whether it's 10 games or 100 games of of uh, one confidence building, but then also just understanding how bigger the bodies, the faster the speeds and the, the harder the hits, the harder the shots, yeah. everything is. So a lot of players end up playing at least for a short period of time um, in, in the minor leagues. What about the, what, what about the European players? I mean, you know, this, this league is filled with European players. Um, I mean, I know that some of them get drafted early. I'm assuming most of them stay probably in Europe and just play a couple of years, kind of get the their sort of uh, NHL professional um, atmosphere um, down and then kind of come over here. I'm assuming that's what they probably do. Yeah, that, I would say that's what happens the majority of the time. The only difference um, is that sometimes um, some players we feel – um, need to learn how to play on um, 
uh, North American sheet of ice. And I'm not sure if you know what that means, but over in Europe, they play on a bigger sheet of ice. They play on an Olympic sized ice rink, which is slightly bigger than what the NHL and most colleges play at. So a lot of times, um, teams might suggest that, you know, maybe they're Swedish players who are really skilled and used to having all of this open space on the ice, go and play in some junior league in, in Canada where the ice is smaller, they're still going to be playing against people that are their age, but then they can learn how to navigate having bodies closer to them at all times and having to battle more against the boards um, while still, you know, honing in on their skills um, with that size ice. Mm, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's a, that's a, it's a, uh, a, a a big thing for them to come over here and play in that. Uh, Cause when you, when they do do Olympics, they, you know, they're probably used to that, like that bigger rank. For so sure. They, they might be an advantage compared to the Americans. <laughs> exactly. You, you see a lot of different styles of hockey. I think it's, especially when, um, you know, it's the Olympics where NHL players are, are allowed yeah. to go in there. You know, yeah, a, lot yeah. of the, a lot of the Americans and the Canadians, have never played on a, on an Olympic size sheet of ice unless they went to a college. Like I think university of Minnesota has, has an Olympic sheet and maybe one or two others. But if you've never played at a school like that, like you, you've never really seen those sheets of ice. Um, so there for sure is that advantage with the European born players that that's just to a point, almost all they know, especially if they've, if they've never come over to the States at all. Sweet. All right. So, <clears throat> segueing to something else that just popped in my mind. So when it comes to the strength conditioning aspects of like an ice hockey, uh, you know, professional college, um, you know, what, what is the typical sort of like program? I mean, are they, so I know they have a ton of games, so I'm assuming that, you know, and they're, they're constantly, you know, like you said, like some, sometimes they're gone traveling. So like, when are they getting in strength conditioning? When are they getting in those, those lifts? Um, is it very similar to the, the, the college game where, or is, or is their game different? They're scheduling different cause, um, you know, they got to go to class during the week. So, um, like what's, what's that, what's that life like? Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, sure the, it's pretty hard. It is for sure, especially at the NHL level. I'd say in college, realistically, it's it's pretty easy. You know, I'd say 90% of games are played on Fridays and Saturdays with a Sunday as an off day for those guys. So Monday you come in and you train and Wednesday you come in and you train. And that's how I think <laughs> probably 90% of the, the college hockey teams do it, um, which makes it really easy to, you know, have either, you know, however you want to do an upper body day, a lower body day, a strength day and a speed day linear periodization, triphasic, whatever. You can kind of do whatever you want in college, and the schedule really allows that. Um, In the minor leagues um, for hockey in the American Hockey League where I started, the schedule is similar, um, just with more games. So a lot of the weekends, they play a three-and-three, which is just three games in three days. So we'll play Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and that is – that it is crazy, and you should see some of these guys on on Sunday after the game's over. But a lot of those teams, like they need to make revenue in order to not fold. So, what's the best days to get fans? Is Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. Yeah. You know, there'll be the occasional Wednesday or Tuesday game sprinkled in there. 
mm-hmm. but most of the time it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or just Friday, Saturday. When you have just a Friday, Saturday, man, that is the best week ever because you can plan out everything. So that that lends itself to generally being the same as college, only you might lift on a, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, if you play Monday, if you play uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday will be an off day. You might just lift two days in a row. Um, or you lift once um, in the middle of the week and maybe you lift after a game on Sunday because typically Sunday games are in the afternoon anyway. So um, that allows it to be same thing, a little bit more uh, able to periodize, 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 yeah. Uh, You know, whatever you kind of want. The NHL level is unbelievably wildly different. You know, we, I have a schedule right here in front of me. You know, we played every other day then we had two days off and played every other day again, had one day, you know, it's like it, it, yeah. it never ends for those. So we end up a lot of times lifting the day before a game. And that ends up being more of a speed and power emphasis day. Um, we do a lot of post game lifts, which we always try to schedule those on some afternoon game, just because it's easier to, you know, convince 20 guys to lift at 4 p.m. on a, on a Saturday versus 11 p.m. on a Saturday. Yeah, um, but then, you know, anytime we have two days off in between games where we're just going to practice most likely both days or have one day fully off and then practice one of those days, um, that, that's kind of an automatic um, lifting day. So we just try and essentially rotate some emphases between a strength day, a power day and a speed day. Mm-hmm. Um, our strength days is, is exactly what you think. You know, we trap our heavy, we dumbbell bench heavy. Um, if you're a smaller guy, you might do some more, um, volume based stuff. Um, and that almost always ends up being on a post game just because we typically have a day off the next day when we schedule mm-hmm. it and don't have to worry about soreness, but we do schedule those in sometimes on practice days. Um, if we have a couple days in between games, um, our power days, um, are kind of that in between where we do more contrast work. So we may have a mix of, you know, some trap bar stuff, maybe some step ups or split squats, but we're doing some jumps and sprints and throws with that as well. Um, and our speed stuff always is typically the day before a game and we'll do, you know, some five yard sprints. Maybe we are, um, band assisted, um, explosive pushup instead of a, a dumbbell bench. So that, um, those days get shifted way more towards the velocity end of the spectrum than the, uh, than the force end of the spectrum. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. I can't, I can't imagine, uh, lifting after a game. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, we, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be crazy. Com- like the, how you convince them is, is, it's gotta be, I mean, so not only that, so like the lift, the like, and then two days from now, like, how, like, I, I mean, I just took a, I'm taking a sports nutrition class right now too. And like, I can't even imagine the amount of food intake they're taking <laughs> within the, within like a, a week or even a, within a day. Like these guys are, uh, I mean, cause you're burning carbs, especially at the speed and power. Like there's, there's not much else you're burning. Yeah, no. And, and <laughs> you're right. You know, they, they're crushing food all the time and we have food available to them at all times. You know, we're, we're really lucky where we have a nutritionist and then two chefs that are with the team. Um, you know, we have 
a million different kinds of bars and and gels and chews um, for quick sugars or, or just to fill their stomach. We have fruit all over the place. We have, you know, these little protein balls that our chef makes. We have peanut butter and Nutella and bread and bagels all over the place. And that's just the snack stuff. You know, then we have breakfast every single day for these guys. We have lunch every single day for these guys on game days. We have a post-game meal for these guys, plus the food that whatever they're eating at home with their wives or girlfriends or whatever it may be. So these guys are always eating and it's, uh, it's crazy too with that amount of consumption, just how lean a lot of these guys are still, you know, like we have, we have multiple guys that over the course of our time here have been sub seven sub six percent body fat and we're just like how is this even possible like i I watch you eat on a day-to-day basis you know and and they're eating really healthy food but you know they also like to crush their uh their burgers every now and then when an off day is coming or something so it's interesting to see the the amount of fuel that goes into these guys bodies and 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 how they utilize it because it is it is a feat that you don't see anywhere else yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I I can I can only imagine because um, you know, besides basketball, like NHL is probably the only sport that's like boom, 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 right after the other. Games are three, four games. I mean, at a high intensity. I mean, I can't. I mean, not to bash on baseball, but like, you know, For you're sure. standing in the outfield, you're not doing yeah, much, yeah, yeah. but. <laughs> hey, I, I got I got friends that work in baseball. It's it's different for sure. They may they might be there, you know, twenty out of or twenty eight out of thirty days a month, but it's not the same intensity that that a lot of these intermittent sports are at all. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, I just want to uh, ask you a quick uh, quick last question here. Uh, actually, a couple yep. two two more questions, and then um, we can uh, finish this off. Um, what what are the areas of injury do you do you see a lot with hockey? I'm assuming a lot of groin ankles maybe i don't know uh only ankles the reason i ask that is because oh i'm i'm assuming there's probably a lot of upper and lower body because you know smashing into the boards and each other um i'm just curious like what's a what's a constant reoccurring thing that you have to sort of rehab and deal with yeah we um especially for our older players we see a lot of hip flexors and groins Um, and that is a combination of just having bony blocks and them not being able to get into some specific positions that they have to force themselves into because Mm -hmm. of hockey. So if they can't get into them, then the the only thing that can give is, is a muscle. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times it ends up being an adductor, um, Mm -hmm. that, um, is at the front of our, um, minds when it comes to injury prevention stuff we uh we've done a lot of stuff with the force frame which is just now what the groin bar is called so we do a lot of um adduction and abduction ratios and have looked into um kind of what are good cutoffs for typical people that have had previous hip injuries or dealing with a hip injury versus people that um don't have those injuries in that history and and what those differences and forces um, but between the internal and external rotators are. So that's given us at least a, an easier idea to pop up a red flag. If someone's not over a specific threshold, they might have to do specific extra work with us to, to strengthen 
um, something to try and avoid anything from happening on the ice. But then the other side of things that we see um, from an upper body standpoint is a lot of AC joint dislocations and separations, um, all from contact. Mm-hmm. Um, those um, are, are pretty common, um, and they're even more common with our guys who have had previous AC injuries. We have a, a handful that have had surgery on those, and even with surgery, you know, there's, there's only so much that can hold down um, th- those bones to, to re-separate again. Um, so we tend to do with those specific guys too, a lot of, um, shoulder specific work. You know, we do a lot of lateral raises, rear delt raises, um, internal and external rotation. Um, our athletic trainers do a lot of like body blade work and stabilization work with those guys. Um, and, and another thing that we're trying to look into is just, uh, body fat and upper body strength and how that musculature and that body fat can provide some extra cushioning for joints. Um, and I think there is somewhere out there, there's some, some research on, uh, man man games lost in the NHL with some sort of body fat measurement, um, and how body fat can correlate to lower man games lost just because there's, there's extra protect protection there. And a, a name that um, I remember a couple of years ago brought this up is Anthony Donskov had talked yeah. about body fat and, and protection and almost as armor um, for those injuries. And we're trying to look at upper body um, muscle mass as sort of that same um, thing. So that's something that we're looking into and in taking body weight and, and lean mass and fat mass and looking at what um, kind of certain cutoffs are for, for AC injuries. Yeah. It's interesting. So, so lifting more upper body could be a, could be a preventative, uh, for AC injury is, is sort of what you're saying. Yeah. I think both from obviously the strength perspective, it's going to yeah. hold bones into place a little bit better, but then from a, from a, you know, if you have a, Protection a huge, if you have a huge delt, you might have two inches of padding before yeah. your collarbone versus someone might only have, you know, uh, an inch and a quarter or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of cool, actually. I, I never thought about that. I wonder if they, I wonder if they do that with with football too, because I'm sure they get yeah. a lot of like linemen and you know big big guys. Like, I wonder if there's any sort of correlation there. Yeah, there is probably. <sighs> That'd be interesting. That's cool. I, I never thought about that. Damn. Uh, anyway, so just kind of sum it up a little bit. Um, you know, uh, I guess you, I, I I try to just say, hey, like if there's tips for young athletes coming either from the youth standpoint, college, whatever, like what kind of tips would you, uh, you know, give, um, especially from a, just from a strength and conditioning standpoint, how important it is, how, how it can be really helpful for them to, um, you know, you know, obviously prevent injury, uh, help them with performance. Cause you know, you've, you've been through, you know, all the, the levels and, you know, gone through a lot and, you know, seen, from different perspectives, especially with sports science, strength conditioning. So kind of elaborate on what, you, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, there, there for sure is a plethora of research showing that that strength and conditioning and um, playing multiple sports is, is going to help a young athlete. And I've seen it, you know, I, I worked in the private sector for a little bit myself, so I've seen it with, you know, 13-year-olds and 11-year-olds in middle school starting strength and conditioning, and I've seen it with, kids trying to make the jump into pro hockey and being, 
you know, 18, 19 years old and not having that background. And it is a, a drastic difference. And I think the one thing I can say to, to younger athletes is there's really nothing that's off limits in terms of what you should be training. You know, I think when, when we get people in here, we're doing testing on every aspect of, of, um, strength conditioning, you know, we're doing aerobic fitness tests. We're doing anaerobic fitness tests. We're doing strength. We're doing power. We're doing speed. We're doing movement, you know, and we want to see a really well-rounded athlete. You know, there's a lot of people that might be really strong, but haven't done any sprinting. And now that's limiting their foot speed on the ice and they can't chase down a puck. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we might have kids that are really fast, but they can't utilize that speed because they're losing the puck all the time because a bigger defenseman is, is battling them against the boards and stealing it. And then uh, with all of those, we have people that maybe don't focus enough on conditioning and don't move um, as well by working on mobility and stability exercises. So then when they get tired, um, they're at a higher risk of injury because they're not moving as well. Or even if their conditioning is good, they're just not great movers in, in general and their risk of injury goes even higher. So there's really no aspect, I personally think, of, of strength and conditioning for a young athlete that should be um, – not taken seriously. You know, I, I think as you get older, you know, once you get into the later stages of high school and then going into college or junior hockey, whatever your, your uh, path is, you can start, you know, seeing what your deficiencies are and going from there. But the, the, I, I would bet that the highest predictor of, of off ice success is just your starting age, you know, how early you start and then how consistent you are throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again, Tim. I appreciate it. Um, it was a great conversation. Uh, I learned a lot for sure about <laughs> hockey. Um, um, and I mean, other areas of just like, you know, sports science and how you utilize, you know, different things. Cause I mean, a lot of the stuff kind of overlaps, so it's for not sure. like, uh, you can't use this in any other place. So appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you again. Yeah. Thanks, Julian. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Train to Perform with Julian Sisman. Learn how you can work with Julian in a personal training session, either online or in person at prepareforperformance.com. And follow on social media for more tips on training, fitness, and sports performance on Twitter at jsisman underscore PFP and Instagram at prepareforperformance.